All right, so life in a pandemic, okay? It's not quite over yet. We have had to live uh, these last, you know, year and a half, almost two years now. We've had to live without things, many good things. Uh, and it started, amongst all things, with a run on toilet paper. <laughs> Got to think back a little bit. But none of us, I don't think, expected the run on Charmin to mark the first challenge of COVID. And yet we survived, even if some of our bottoms are a little worse for the wear. Many of us had to live without haircuts, and I won't comment on some of you that may still need them this morning. <laughs> Students had to survive without those in-person classes. Uh, we had to live without the vacations. Many of us had planned as well. Even the COVID-related supply chain issues, right, that are still a part of, uh, of the market today. Lord, that we are seeing just bare shelves. I took my son to get a dress shirt for prom. And they didn't have a single shirt in his size in all of Dillard's up in Fayetteville. Uh, yeah, items on delay, just promising for perhaps a mess of a Christmas season. But that's just outside, right? Even in our churches and our own walls, uh, we've had to adjust to life without some of those big weddings that had been dreamed of. Some funerals that we had to postpone or do in much smaller settings. We've had to delay trips to visit missionaries overseas or maybe even delay the ability to send missionaries overseas. We've had to go without at times hugs when we're hurting. We've had to go without visits to the hospital of those we love. Right? All of that, those things we've had to live without, that's taken its toll. It's been hard at various points in the seasons. But friends, what about life without God? What about trying to live life without God? I mean, we can, let's be honest, we can live without toilet paper and haircuts for a while, all right? Maybe unpleasant, we can figure out a way to do it. But friends, what about life without God? Or life where God is merely relegated to the distant margins of our own lives? Friend, do you think that kind of a life is a life you can thrive? You can thrive in that kind of a life. Do you think that's a kind of life in which you can even survive a life without God? Friends, these are the things I want us to be thinking about as we look in our Bibles to 1 Samuel 28. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn there to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 28. Uh, if you are newer to the Bible, maybe you're visiting this morning, um, hopefully you were able to grab a Bible on the way in. I think those, are those Bibles right there near the exit sign? Yeah, there are Bibles right there and over there if you don't happen to have one. And never feel embarrassed if you're new to the Bible. The Bible actually has a table of contents, like many books. And you're going to find the Old Testament books right there, the first five books of the law. And then there are roughly, I think, 16 historical books uh, from, uh, from Joshua to Esther. And 1 Samuel is fourth in that list. You can find it uh, there in the historical books. And as you, as you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 28... Uh, 1 Samuel really tells the story of how this young nation of Israel is, has already been freed from Egyptian bondage, and this young nation is going to transform herself from this sleepy tribal village into a great monarchy under King David. But before we get to David, there was actually a king before David. There was the first king whose name was Saul. And Saul, if you know the story, he certainly looked the part. Saul's the kind of guy that would grace every Men's Health GQ magazine, right? Saul looked the part. The problem with Saul is Saul couldn't play the part. And so God had to, had to identify a king after his own heart. 
and he identified this young shepherd boy, this one no one expected in the person of David. The problem, of course, is Saul's on the throne, and kings don't like to give up their reign easily or lightly. And so Saul tries to run David out of Israel. And by the time you get to chapter 27, David has actually had to flee. It's gotten so bad that David actually had to flee to the Philistines. So David, the Goliath slayer, finds a better home amongst the Philistines that he can in his own country under Saul. And so we're going to pick up the story uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 28. And we read there, In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish, who's the Philistine king, Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Okay, we're going to stop right there after those first two verses. So notice how chapter 28 opens. It opens in the opening scene are the Philistines gathering together for war against Israel. And in 1 Samuel, whenever the Philistines are gathering for war, tune in because something significant is about to happen. You can go back to chapter 4, you can see that, chapter 13, chapter 17. And David knows he's with the Philistines, and he's been kind of feigning obedience. He's been largely pretending, in other words, to obey Achish. And he's been playing, by living amongst the Philistines and doing these raids in the previous chapters, he's been playing this high-stakes game of poker. And now Achish is about to call his bluff and say, now, okay, you've been doing this. Now go with me against your own people. David, fight against your own nation. And yet before David is forced to sort of lay down that hand, uh, the scene suddenly turns to Saul, we're going to see, in verse 3. And if you've ever been in a car... You know, you're driving, perhaps listening to the radio, those things people used to listen to, right, with commercials that are annoying. But nonetheless, if you remember car radios, there were sometimes those moments where you get that obnoxious, annoying interruption, right? This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. This is only a test. And then you'd hear that screeching and so forth, right? That was meant to gather your attention. Well... This chapter and this moment with a shift from David to Saul in verse 3, as we're about to see, that shift to Saul is also meant to arrest our own attention. Because as bad as David's situation is amongst the Philistines about to fight against his own people, as bad as David's situation is being trapped amongst his own enemies, there is a situation worse. And that's what Saul's going to show us, and that's to have God as your own enemy. And that's what we're going to see as the rest of chapter 28 unfolds. And I want us to look at the rest of chapter 28 in really three parts. I want us to look at Saul's predicament. That's the first part. Then Saul's proposal, right? What's his solution to this problem? His proposal, and then Saul's punishment. So those are the three movements as we just work through chapter 28. Saul's predicament, his proposal, and then his punishment. And as we go through, Lord willing, we'll be learning some lessons for us. So first, let's look at Saul's predicament. All right, so we're going to pick it up, pick up the story in chapter 28, verse 3. Now Samuel had died. Samuel was, was the prophet throughout the book of 1 Samuel, right, named after him. Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. 
And Saul had put the mediums and necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Okay, we're going to stop there in verse 6. So the scene opens, and we're reminded first that Samuel, Samuel, the great Samuel, had died highlighting, that's highlighting the precarious position of the nation, the nation without its own leading prophet. And not only has Samuel died, but the Philistines are now gathering for war against God's people. And the size of this army has Saul shaking in his own boots. Friends, there are going to be times in life when you will be gripped by fear. Something will happen, and it will cause you great fear, great anxiety, as it's happening with Saul right here. Maybe that fearful thing is the loss of a job, Maybe it's the loss of a loved one or of a relationship. Maybe it's a diagnosis you receive. In that uncertainty, we can feel frozen, right? That, that fear can paralyze us. And something we learn in such moments is that fear exposes the quality of our faith. Fear will expose the quality of our faith or the lack thereof. So desperate circumstances have a way of, of really revealing the depth of our own true commitments. So in such moments, who do we reach for? To what do we turn, right? That's what fear reveals. And initially, it looks promising, because what does Saul do? Saul, Saul goes to the Lord. He looks to the Lord. He inquires of the Lord. But Saul, we see, has a double problem. First, the voices of the Philistines are rising. Their army is great. And the second problem is the voice of God is nowhere to be heard. Verse 6, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Now that can raise some, perhaps some unsettling questions, right? Does the Lord not answer his own people? Will he not answer me if I cry out to the Lord? Well, friend, the, the truth is God, God always responds to those who cry out to him in genuine faith. Now, that doesn't mean God always answers, answers according to our own schedule and our own timing. It doesn't mean God always gives us exactly what we ask for. And sometimes when we ask things of God, it seems like God gives us a non-answer because the very thing he wants to do is to grow us in our own faith. But he always responds in the right time and in the right way. So how do we understand the situation with Saul? Well, think about his own situation. Take the, the Urim. The Urim was this uh, stone sort of held in the breastplate of the ephod, which the priests would wear. And we don't know exactly how the Urim and Thurim, we don't know exactly how that all worked, other than it was a means by which the priests used to determine divine guidance, to seek guidance from God. And that's how priests used it. The problem is there are no priests. And why are there no priests? Because Saul killed them all. Back at Nob in chapter 22, if you know that horrific chapter. So the Urim's no help because there are no priests, because Saul's killed them. And God did not answer by prophets because Saul had rejected the prophet God had sent him, had rejected Samuel. In other words, part of what we're seeing in verse 6 is this problem Saul faces is a problem all of his own making. Saul had dug this pit and now found himself in it. You know, I was reading through first. Uh, 
Chronicles in my own daily Bible reading a little while back, and I was reading, and if you know First Chronicles, how many of you have ever tried to read through First Chronicles? How many of you actually made it through? Okay, some of you aren't being honest. No, I'm kidding. Uh, you know, the First Chronicles is where, like, Bible reading plans go to die, because you have those chapters after chapter after chapter of genealogies, and it gets exhausting. You're like, why am I reading this? Why am I reading this? Well, you know what? I have that same experience, too, except I happen to be going through chapter 10, and I came across these verses. So Saul broke faith with the Lord, and that he did not keep the command of the Lord. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Friends, those verses were like hidden in those, that huge genealogy, and they're actually a great commentary on our own chapter because they give us a window into Saul's own heart. Saul didn't want guidance. Saul just wanted deliverance. Saul wanted to be rescued by God. Saul wasn't looking for a relationship with God. Saul didn't truly fear God. Saul just wanted the favor of God in his own life. Saul was looking for a solution to his situation. Saul was not looking to a savior for his own sin. Friend, I wonder if you see yourself at all in the person of Saul. When you're in a bind, do you cry out to God because you truly fear God? Or do you just call out to him when you want his favor? Just be honest with yourself for a moment. Are you looking for temporary solutions to your problems? Or are you looking for a lasting savior? Do you merely want to be rescued from something so you can get on with your life? Or do you want a genuine relationship with God that extends the rest of your life? Friend, God sees through the charade of our own hearts. He knows our hearts. He knew Saul's heart. Saul couldn't fool God. We don't fool God. And part of what we're seeing is God's not one to be mocked. You know, he's, he's no talisman. He's, he's not some personal genie. Sometimes we can be tempted to treat God like a cosmic bellhop, right? Do the divine bidding when we lift up our prayers. And when we treat God that way, we shouldn't be surprised if he chooses to ignore the ring of the next bell because we don't really want him. We only, only want the benefits of him. Realize that, that can be no different, you know, with us. Have you often noted how, how so many people, maybe even you, sometimes me, we can ignore God. We can ignore God. And then at some point, we start complaining like God's ignoring us. You know, so often we turn our backs against God. We want God to leave us alone so we can get on with our own lives. And then we're surprised when God gives us what we want. Friend, if you persistently close yourself off to the voice of God's word, there will come a time when God's voice may be closed off to you and you're not able to hear. If you, like Saul, rejoice in the comforting voice of God, all those words of comfort, you take those, but you plug your ears to the correcting voice of God as Saul did, there may come a time where God gives you neither that correcting or comforting voice. Instead, you will get silence, as Saul experiences here, and that silence will haunt you. And yet, one challenge, I think, of the Christian life, if you've lived at any period of time, is it sometimes feels like God is silent. 
It sometimes feels like God is not answering. So if you know Psalm 10, verse 1, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Right? That's a legitimate prayer. God, it seems, sometimes hides himself in trouble. Or Psalm 42, 9, Why, O God, have you forgotten me? There are times in the Christian life where it feels like God's, maybe he's gone on vacation, or maybe God, like, blocked our number. We're trying to reach him, but he doesn't hear us. He's not getting our texts or our messages. It feels like God has forgotten us, or maybe even worse, God's forsaken us. Friend, what do you do in such moments? What should Saul maybe even do here? Well, if you know Psalm 13, I think David's own example is a helpful one. If you don't know Psalm 13, maybe, maybe read it this afternoon, reflect on it. When David feels forgotten by God and abandoned by God, notice he continues in Psalm 13. If you read it, he continues to cry out to God. He continues to plead before God. So it is okay to complain to God. It is okay to bring your complaints to God. What's not okay is to complain about God. Complain to him, not about him. The true saint perseveres and holds fast to God even if they feel somewhere along the way maybe they've lost God. Faith in God. This is the constant testimony of Scripture, right? Whether it's, it's Noah there in the boat or Abraham waiting for, for children, whatever the promises are, faith in God always requires us to wait upon God. That's just the posture of the Christian life, that waiting upon God to be true to his promises. Friends, does Saul wait? Does he persevere? Let's see. Let's keep reading, picking up in verse 7. I want us to think at uh, Saul's predicament. So that was sort of Saul's, that was the problem. Uh, sorry, the predicament was, was the first thing. God's not listening. Saul's proposal to that problem. Let's see what Saul does. Does he wait? Does he persevere? What does he do in the midst of the silence? Let's move to our second point. Look at verse 7. We pick there. Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? She said, an old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? 
Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. Okay, we're going to stop right there at verse 15. Now, these verses raise a host of questions. They raise a whole host of questions. Can mediums, can necromancers summon the dead? Well, sort of. Does that mean we should be conjuring up the ghosts of our long-lost loved ones? Well, I don't think we should take that from this text. Is this why we shouldn't play with Ouija boards? Maybe. And then you read about Endor, and you're like, wait, Endor rings a bell. Wasn't Endor like that moon with those fuzzy Ewoks in Return of the Jedi? Yes, it is. If you actually know, uh, Lucas loved to take biblical themes and twist them, and he actually does that with this one. That's a whole other sermon. I won't go there now. Point being, lots of interesting questions we could ask about this text. Those aren't the main questions, though. What's obvious is that when faced with the silence of God, Saul doesn't continue to turn to God and plead with God, but he immediately goes to a medium, right? One who summons the dead. So if there was any doubt about the state of Saul's heart, whether or not it was repentant or not, we're seeing it's quite unrepentant, in fact. And these verses really put it to rest. Because barely have we heard that the Lord hasn't answered Saul, that Saul, what's he doing? He's like Google searching the nearest psychic, right? Where can I go? Where do I turn next? And notice his servants aren't saying, hey, whoa, whoa, Saul, time out. Remember, you put all those people out of business. That's what we read early in the chapter. They're not saying. Rather, his servants are like, hey, funny you ask. And they pull you know, out of their pockets a business card of some gal, which doesn't give you the impression that Saul surrounded himself by the most godly of men. And off Saul goes to this medium. And notice what he has to do. Notice how he disguises himself in verse 8 by disrobing himself. Now, his robe would have been a sign of his own kingly rule. So to remove his kingly robe and to put on common clothes, that's just another subtle indication that Saul has forfeited his right to reign. And of course, he comes to this woman, what do we read in verse 8? By night. So darkness is fitting for these dark deeds that Saul himself is pursuing. Night is also just how the whole chapter is going to close in verse 25. So everything about this exchange between Saul and this medium, it's dark, it's foreboding, right? And when he comes to her, she thinks it's a trap. She thinks this is some like sting operation by undercover agents. And she's like, no, I know what's going to happen. Like this is capital punishment. I could get in big trouble for this. God's word was clear, Deuteronomy 18, uh, chapters uh, 18, verses 10 to 12, actually forbid mediums who inquired of the dead. The Lord called that an abomination. Actually, it was, it was capital punishment was, was, the, was the call for it. And yet, we have Israel's king seeking wisdom from a witch, right? That's how far Saul has fallen. And notice what he says in verse 10. Saul swore to her, how did he swear to this, to this witch? By the Lord. He said, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. So do you catch just the tragic irony right there? Notice Saul is swearing by the Lord. He's swearing by the Lord in order to sin against the Lord. Friend, that right there 
is how darkened and deceived and desperate Saul has become. Right? Saul here is entirely unraveling before our own very eyes. Right? He loved the comforting voice of God, but Saul had no space for the correcting voice of God. And years later, this is where that got him. So just maybe stop here and, and take Saul's life and take this moment as, as a warning to you. You know, you might be this morning flirting with sin in your own life. Maybe you're a teenager and you're thinking, I got the rest of my life before me. This sin's not that big a deal. I can always walk away from it later. That rarely works. We set those foundations or maybe you're 45 and you're thinking, you know, I can have God, I can have Jesus, and I can have this little indiscretion too, right? God understands, right? He forgives. We can tell ourselves that. But friends, in the scriptures, little sins regularly pave the way for larger sins, which then pave the way for unthinkable sins. That's just the way sin works. Sin, by its very nature, deceives So you may think the slightest capitulation here or the slightest indiscretion there, you may convince yourself it's actually not that big a deal. But no, sin isn't just happy with a piece of you. Sin wants to have all of you. And once you begin making little concessions and little excuses, there is no end. See that in Saul. See where it has led him. It's why we are called in the Proverbs to guard our heart above all else, right? To guard it, which means not to give in to sin, not to give in one inch, but to to guard it, to protect it at all costs. For from the heart, from it flows the wellspring of life, Proverbs 4.23. And we see one of the sad truths we find in Scripture, and we see it in Saul, and that is that deeply religious people can still be desperately lost people. Saul would have understood himself to be a deeply religious man. He is still a desperately lost man. And deeply religious people can still be deeply rebellious people. Saul was a desperately rebellious man, and we're still seeing that even here. Saul needed a divine savior, but he looked right here to a He looked instead to a divining seer, right? He no longer had ears to hear God's word. Friend, don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. Now, we're not exactly told how this woman conjures up the ghost of Samuel. You know, I'm personally of the opinion that those who hold themselves out like as as necromancers, you know, spirits as mediums, you know, the, the, they're charlatans, they're fakes. I trust the vast majority of them. So I'm not advocating the old movie Ghost. I haven't seen it in decades. So don't quiz me on the movie. But there is that scene, if you know the old movie Ghost, you probably have to be over 40, um, where, where there's Whoopi Goldberg. And she pretends to communicate with the dead in order to deceive people and make money. Except when actually Patrick Swayze like shows up And she's shocked and horrified because it actually like worked for once. Well, that's kind of the impression I think we get here as we read this story. You don't get the impression this woman actually expected to see Samuel. She seems about as frightened by this prospect as Saul is. So she walks through her sort of mystical hocus pocus routine and then Samuel appears and she freaks out. 
which suggests to me that this appearance of Samuel probably had a lot more to do with God's work than it had to do with her work. God was doing something in this moment. And here's the thing, when God seems silent, when his ears seem deaf to our prayers, we can, like Saul, be tempted to pursue extraordinary means. Like, this ordinary stuff isn't working out, I need something more. But you know, you read in Isaiah 8, verse 19, and when they, the people of the land, say to you, in this case Isaiah, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? So right there in Isaiah, God's saying, why would you go out, Israel, and inquire of dead men when you have the living God you can call out to? Now, some of you may be thinking, yeah, who does that, right? Who does that? But, you know, in today's new sort of bespoke age of spirituality, such practices are actually on the rise. It's estimated today in Italy. So Italy is the cradle of Roman Catholicism. We think of Italy sort of as a religious nation, by and large. But there in Italy, it's estimated there are far more mediums than there are even Catholic priests. So astrology... That used to be, when I was growing up, the things on the back of the tabloids. You kind of poke at, poke fun of, and the rest. But today, you will find horoscopes in every major U.S. paper. Consulting horoscopes among the millennial generation, that's grown over 400%. And part of what God's word is telling us, though, is listen, you don't need to gaze up at the stars to see what's in store. You don't need to consult horoscopes or tarot cards, or go to a palm reader, or a spiritist. Isaiah 8 goes on from verse 19 to verse 20 and says, go to God's instruction and testimony. Go to, you want wisdom, you want guidance, go to God's instruction and testimony, right? Christians are called to go to the word. Why would we consult the dead when we have the living word, Jesus Christ? Why would we consult the dead when we all know we have one who's come back from the dead? And we can pray to that one, and we can seek wisdom from that one. You know, when Peter, James, and John witness the transfiguration, when they see Jesus in all of his heavenly glory, notice what God doesn't say. God doesn't say, there's Jesus, behold him. Be transfixed by him. Gaze at him. No, what does God say? Listen to him. Listen to his words. Those words that are living and active. And yet for so many of us, we open the word and we're like, oh, this living and active word, it's not enough. We want some extra message. We want God to speak to us more directly. We want our own personal word. Maybe we look to dreams or visions. We throw out fleeces, like those things we do and we're seeking direction. The problem is God doesn't promise to use any of those extraordinary means. He can use them, but he doesn't ordinarily use them. So friends, don't pray and seek for what God doesn't promise when his promised word is always before you. It may be closed and you may need to open it up, but it is there. So if you are pursuing a word from God this morning, just begin by opening up this word and by starting right there. The problem isn't that God doesn't speak to us. God has spoken to us and he spoke to us perfectly through the person of Jesus Christ. The problem so often with us when we're seeking wisdom and guidance is that sometimes we're honestly just a little bit lazy. Sometimes we're a bit too indifferent. Maybe we're a little bit frustrated by what God has to say and we look for another means. You know, we thought about Saul's predicament. 
what got him into the situation. And for those of you who like puns, we've just seen his ghastly proposal. Lastly, we need to consider where does it all lead? The third thing I want us to think about Saul's punishment. So his predicament and his proposal now is punishment. We pick up in verse 16. What's going to happen after calling up Samuel through this medium? Verse 16. And Samuel said, speaking to Saul here, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, or Amalek rather. Therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. So we're going to stop right there at the end of verse 18. So here Samuel makes explicit what has already just been implied thus far. It's that Saul cannot hear the word of God because he had rejected the word. He cannot hear it because he had already rejected it. So that reference to uh, Amalek harkens back to, to chapter 15. So that's in chapter 15. Saul's the new king, and as the new king, he's charged with clearing out the promised land. He was to carry out God's justice against the Amalekites by destroying everything in the land, including all of the livestock. But if you know the story, Saul and the people don't destroy all the livestock. The Saul and the people are like, man, all this livestock, why would we get rid of this? Like, we should keep some of this for us. And Samuel confronted Saul. And Saul's like, no, we obeyed God. Like, we did it all, Samuel, we did it. And remember, if you know the story, Samuel's like, then what are all these sheep doing here? The bleeding of the sheep that I hear. What are they, Saul? You know better. You were supposed to destroy them all. You see, Saul had learned to twist God's word. He had learned to rewrite God's word for his own benefit. Right? Just a few sheep, he reasoned. What's the harm of a few sheep? In Saul's mind, those few sheep, that was just harmless accommodation. But God saw that moment for what it was. That was rebellion against his voice. Rebellion against his word. Friend, I wonder about you. In your own life, maybe even now, are there ways in which you are silencing the word of God? Ways in which maybe you are tempted to twist the word of God in the form of your own personal accommodation. Maybe you're tempted to ignore or to reinterpret what the Bible has to say about gender and sexuality. You know, that can be tempting because our culture increasingly hates. It even seeks to criminalize those who hold out a biblical ethic. So if you're in the workplace, you can be pressured in such categories. If you're in the school system, you can be pressured in such ways. Or maybe you've silenced the, the voice of God when it says you're to love your enemy or you're to pray for those in authority over you, even when they're on the opposite side of the political aisle from you, or that need to forgive others when they've sinned against you, even up to like 77 times, even over and over and over again, you've sought to silence that because it's too difficult, or to stay true to those faithful covenant vows of marriage, whatever it might be. Recognize that any attempt you may make to reinterpret God's word in your favor is to reject it. And if you reject God's word, right, if you start changing it for your own benefit, that's a word that God may take from you 
to persistently refuse to obey God's speech, right, is to suffer in his silence as Saul is. You know, that's the, the horrifying consequence now we see of a life without God. In the greatest crisis of Saul's life, the voice of the one person he most needs is now closed to him, and he can't hear from the Lord. And notice, for all this accommodation in Saul's life, yes, has Saul become a friend of the world? He has. And yet, he has become an enemy of God. And the truth is, we can have lots of enemies in this life. And you know what? As Christians, we're going to be just fine. Jesus also promised we're going to have many enemies in this life. And obedience to him will mean some of our family may hate us, our friends may turn on us, classmates, coworkers, right? They too may despise us. The reality is everyone can be our enemy in this life and we will be just fine. There is one person you cannot afford to have as your own enemy and that is God himself. For in Christ he will crush every enemy under his feet. Saul wanted a life without God. But friend, part of what we're seeing is in the end there's really no such thing. You cannot escape God. You can't put God on a shelf and pretend like you have put him away and he won't come back. We cannot dodge him forever. One way or another, there will be a reckoning. But not only must Saul suffer God's silence in this life, but if we read on in verse 19, what do we read in verse 19? Samuel says to Saul, Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow... You and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Stop there at verse 19. Friends, I I hope you heard how chilling those words are of Samuel to Saul in verse 19. Nobody ever wants to hear from a ghost. I'll be seeing you and your kids real soon. And that's exactly what Samuel says to Saul. Though the king was established back in chapter 9 to, quote, save my people from the hand of the Philistines, now we're seeing that same king will actually be slaughtered and his sons at the hand of the Philistines. And friend, that is the end of a life without God. And it is not pretty. And the Bible makes it clear. It never is pretty. And it really underscores, I think, the main point of the entire chapter. So if you want to summarize chapter 28 in a sentence, it's this. One who forsakes God will be forsaken by God. It's that simple. One who forsakes God will be forsaken by God. And Saul's fate is sealed. And we finish the story picking up in verse 20, reading to the end. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. There was no strength in him. He had eaten nothing all day and all night, and the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand, and I have listened. Saul's not been listening to God, but she's been listening, at least to what Saul said. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go out on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. He wouldn't listen to God's words, but he'll listen to their words. 
And so he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. And then they rose and went away that night. Now that may strike you as odd. I know as I read this chapter, I'm like, why all these details? Why so much from verse 20 and on? And maybe it's just to expose the kind of helplessness and hopelessness of this condemned man. And maybe we're meant to feel that. So Saul serves as a kind of warning to us. Maybe it's to highlight the own stubbornness of his own unrepentant heart, right? He won't listen to the wisdom of God, but he's listening to the wisdom of this witch. And notice, notice if you caught that, what he's eating, his final meal. His final meal is a fattened calf. So we're finding him here dining on the very thing he wouldn't destroy back in chapter 15. God said destroy them all. He wouldn't do it. Now here he is dining on one. It's really a fitting end for a very faithless and condemned king. I hope you see that a repentance, a repentance that does not change you in this life, cannot save you for the next. Let me just say that again. A repentance that does not truly change you in this life will not save you in the next. Saul knew how to go through the motions. He confessed his sins, even tearfully and often. But it's evident as you trace his story, Saul never had a genuine change of heart. He never trusted God fully enough to surrender to him, nor did he value God enough to find satisfaction in him. Friend, what is true repentance? To quote one author, true repentance is full trust in God, and complete satisfaction with God that leads to an unconditional surrender to God. If you want to think about biblical repentance, it is full trust in God and complete satisfaction with God that leads to unconditional surrender to God. And yet Saul's repentance was always partial, always conditional, And yet I think these final verses are doing something else for us as well. Notice what the woman offers Saul in verse 22. A morsel of bread. And notice how the scene closes, verse 25. We read of how they rose and went away that night. I wonder if those details remind you of anything. Do those details remind you of anyone? One who also ate a morsel of bread, and went out a condemned man. Do you remember the story of Judas? On the night he betrayed Jesus, we read in John 13, 30, so after receiving a morsel of bread, he, Judas, immediately went out, and it was night. You see the connection of those two characters. Saul already an early picture of Judas himself. Like Judas had not only rejected God, but Saul himself had conspired to kill the true king of God, the one after God's own heart, David. Right, so we're getting the last meals of two condemned men. 
Both had forsaken God. Both would be forsaken by God. And yet we have to look to and remember another who also would eat. And after a meal, he too would head out into the darkness. There was another condemned man who would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words which are very similar to what Saul utters in 28.15 when he says, God has turned away from me and answers me no more. And yet this one who died would rise. Because this one did not die for his own sins. This one had no sin to condemn him. Yet this one, Jesus, willingly took sin upon his own shoulders. This Jesus, Jesus truly became God-forsaken so that we would never have to become God-forsaken. Friends, every one of us, every one of us have betrayed God. We've rejected his word. We deserve to be rejected in return. But the beautiful news of the gospel that's already starting to be pictured here is that when we repent of our sins and when we trust in this God alone, when we truly hear his voice, listen and obey him, and when we look to this Jesus who was forsaken and rejected for us, we can ourselves be reconciled to this God. We can be brought back into right fellowship with him. Friend, have you been reconciled to God? Or do you look a lot more and act a lot more like Saul? Will you ignore God's word? Will you reject his plea? Will you risk and suffer eternally? Right, there are all kinds of things in this life we can afford to live without. But life without God? Death outside of God? Friend, God is the one thing and the only person that you cannot afford to live without. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray and we pray that as we reflect on Saul's own life and some of the haunting lessons we learn from it, God, we pray that if we in any way in our own sin have become callous to it, if we have closed our ears off to your voice, if we have accommodated your word to culture, if we have done such things as Saul did, if we have twisted and feigned obedience when we really don't intend to obey, Lord, if we have driven you to the margins of our life at best, we pray this morning you would use your word to convict us, to call us to yourself maybe for the first time or back to yourself where we must be. God, we pray that you would do that work in the confidence that you will hold your people fast. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.